So I'm Ryan Pack. I'm Brandis. And this is Soundtrack Your Life, where we talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they feel connected to. Today we are joined by Daniel Ephraim, photographer, manager, and he also put together the Steve Keen art book. So welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, Daniel. Hello. Thanks for having me. I am very honored to have you. Um, as I was showing you offline, I own a copy of the Steve Keen art book that you have put together. That's awesome. I'm so. I'm, I, it's always uh, a pleasure to to run into someone that uh, already has the book. That's that's an exciting thing for me. Thank you. Yeah, as far as like soundtracking my life, you know, Steve Keen has done the album covers for some of my favorite records, like Pavement's Wowie Zowie and the Apples and Stereo Fun Trick Noisemaker, as well as Tone Soul Evolution, and uh, and and also like the Silver Jews records, like American Water. So huge honor to have someone that is connected to you know, the artwork of Steve Keenan put together this awesome book that I immediately bought when I found out it existed. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you know, I really appreciate it. It's, it's, it's been a, a fun journey. So we'll get more into that in a little bit, but uh, today we are going to talk about the 1997 George Armitage film Gross Point Blank. So Daniel, why yes. did we why did you pick Gross Point Blank? Well, I hadn't watched it in a long time and I thought you know, it was kind of ripe for being rewatched because I was looking for soundtracks that okay, what really spoke to me? I was like, "Oh, wait, god, Gross Point Blank, Gross Point Blank." And I actually asked um uh the uh, the Steve Keen um uh group of community i was like what soundtrack should i i'm going on this podcast what soundtracks do you like um and they just to see what they were if i was missing anything and a, and a couple of them mentioned i was like yeah i gotta check that one out and i looked it up and i love it because it's dominated by joe strummer based and the clash based music from that era uh or from his his world if you will uh it seems like it's primary it turns out that he has i've noticed he has a credit in the in the opening credits uh that you know music from joe strummer is is in the beginning credits and then i thought oh of course this is why i, I love this uh this film and it's a it's a, a watching it again it was actually quite enjoyable funny film so um all good things all the around funny containing good music hey we're in yeah and i think joe strummer scored the movie not that there's like a ton of score but he actually scored it as well you're, I'm pretty sure. I think that's your. You're right. That's what I'm. Uh, that's what I was thinking. Yes. So, and you know, it, it didn't seem like there was a ton of score, but uh, you know, uh, I'll, 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 I'll take it if it says Joe Strummer. I'll take it. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of use of music in the film, like altogether. If you like, maybe compare it to like some other films, there were a lot of like quiet moments, which really made the use of songs and scoring, you know, like really like jump out in the moments when they like were there. It was really interesting because i think that like lately we've been like talking a lot about like soundtracks or movies that have just like wall to wall you know like music and there were just so many long periods of quiet um that didn't have it and so it was just like really interesting like mix of like how the songs like came into play with the movie too 
I think that's, uh, I mean, you, you guys are more the experts than I am in this, but um, it, it would seem like when it is, a, you know, there's a specific choice that, that they're making to uh, include score in these positions or not. Um, and it is interesting when that balance is shifted. It seems to me that some of the biggest films that are made, they always have wall-to-wall score, or it would seem, again, you know, uh, always is probably the wrong word to use, but uh, it would seem to me like it's, it's it, big films seem to have this kitchen sink approach to almost every facet of it. And so I think you're right, Brad. It's like, uh, it's cool to, to uh, have heard the, the moments of silence in there as well, especially because it's a quirky film and it's got a lot of humor to it. So it, it's always moving. And um, I also think it's fun that they're, because it's always moving, there's, it, it, it's a, it, it has such a pace to the film and the editing. I think it's, uh, they, they really do use the score well. Uh, upon, again, upon watching it again for the first time in a long time, I think they, they use it well um, uh, additionally. Yeah, it was my second time seeing the film. And again, like it had been a long time since the first time I'd seen it. And so it was, you know, like plot wise, obviously it wasn't new to me, but I didn't remember anything about like the soundtrack. I didn't really remember anything about like how off the wall like the dialogue was. And so I was like definitely rediscovering these things almost as if it was like a first watch. And it is a ton of fun. And you're right. The editing is like really fast paced. Um, you know, like there may be quiet moments in the film from like a musicality standpoint, but in terms of like pacing, there are no quiet moments in that film. It is like definitely bonkers and a ton of fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's a it's a movie about a hitman, so it wouldn't make sense for all this soundtrack to be constantly going while this guy's you know lining up trying to shoot a guy. <laughs> Right. Like I completely forgot about like, I guess, spoiler alert, but it's been out for a while. So <laughs> fair game. I... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for 25 years of spoiling. Right, yeah. yeah, Brandis. <laughs> how dare you spoil that for us? Brandis, like... shame on you. <laughs> sorry, sorry. If you, if you haven't seen the movie, hit pause, go watch it, then come back. Um, I completely forgot about the second hit where he's like sending the poison like down the stream. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so slick. And then the guy's face moved in. I'm like, okay, maybe that's not so slick. I, like, completely forgot about that scene. So great. <laughs> I totally did, too. That was an, I real, that was a really amazing scene. And when I was watching it, I thought the same thing. I thought, wow, I totally forgot about this. And A, and then B, that's super creative. Wow. And I think C was... Wow, I hope no one ever does that to me. But anyway, uh, that was Did else. everyone like immediately go into their bedroom and make sure there were like no vents like above their bed? <laughs> yeah, that's just poor room design. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, come on. Um, or maybe poor bed placement. Uh, you know, that's I mean... true. <laughs> it's a combination of bad yes. factors. I'm going to let you guys talk about the soundtrack for a bit before I come in guns blazing because I have a bit of an unpopular opinion and I don't want to like swing the conversation. So I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> you guys okay. do you for a few minutes okay. and then then I'll come in. <laughs> she, she's, she's worried she's going to offend you. <laughs> Though apples yeah. and stereo are not on the soundtrack, so I'm not sure why. I mean, I'm already offended just being here, so... <laughs> Um, Great, I'll just pile you on. Know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, feel free. 
uh, I'm a bit of a punching bag anyway, so <laughs> friends will know this. It's fine. But anyway, yeah. Um, where do we go from here, Ryan? You're you're steering this ship. Brandis has signed off, so <laughs> she she her soul has left her body temporarily. She'll be back. <laughs> so for so this came out in 1997, and so Ska had permeated pop culture by, at this point. So no doubt is huge. And, you know, all these ska bands are showing up on the radio and on MTV. But but the ska on this soundtrack is from the 80s. And to me, it opened a whole new world. Like, I was like, oh, so this is this is what ska is. Not, <laughs> I mean, there there are some bands in the 90s that I ended up, ended up enjoying, like, like Skank and Pickle and Operation Ivy and stuff. But, you know, I had heard, you know, that Joe Strummer was associated with ska but from the Clash radio songs that I had heard up to this point, I didn't understand the connection, you know, Rock the Casbah and, you know, um, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Like, those songs don't sound like Scott at all. Or I Fought the Law, which is a cover anyways. But, you know, these were more like just kind of like punk or just rock songs to me. So this was the first uh, exposure for me to the Clash's kind of more Scott dub side. Well, they're, they're, I mean, their album Sandinista is, you know, known for it, it, it you know, that's what uh, most of that album is referencing. So when you get to, um, they're known, that, that was their last studio album. So when you get to that part of their career, which when Sandinista came out, I'm not certain it was, I think it was kind of uh, not as, uh, uh, it was embraced, but not in the same way as some of their other albums because it was such a departure, and it's such a it's a it's a massive album. And I think it's I think it's originally it was three sides of vinyl, uh, originally. Um, so it's a it's a big it's a big album in terms of a, a large scope that it covers musically, and a lot of this. Um, so that was uh, in the eighties. That was their last album. So. Uh, last studio album. So that was really like where I think people really started to see not just the, obviously they'd cover all, you know, they'd covered some songs uh, uh, before this, but at this point um, in their career, at the end of their, at the end was when they really started to experiment uh, more in the studio and they had the time to do it or at least more time to do it. And they felt like they could, they could uh, unleash themselves, I guess, or they weren't tethered to a specific thing. And so I think this really references, um, I think, I think Sandy needs to really references a lot of this, um, this, uh, the, uh, their love for dub, um, more than really anything else in their career. If I could be so bold to say that, obviously they have other influences in there, but in terms of album and actual music, in terms of the full albums, uh, cycle or, um, full album full of compositions i think that that's what represents it the most yeah, and i feel like everything kind of branches off from there and maybe because the basis of the soundtrack isn't like the radio songs of the clash it doesn't feel like this 80s nostalgic grab even though it is a very 80s sort of soundtrack that's an interesting thing. I don't know that I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm on the fence about that. Um, I don't think it's nostalgia. 
Well, I should say that, um, I mean, the, the whole, actually, the whole premise of the film might be nostalgia in a way because there's going back to high his school reunion, yeah. high school Tenure reunion. reunion. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about this with you, I, I'm, I wasn't clear on it necessarily. You have uh, but, um, Minnie Driver you know, when she's acting as like the um, like the radio host, you know, and she's like, I'm going to take you back to like the 80s or whatever. There is that like middle chunk of the soundtrack that's played sort of like in tandem with like her choosing songs. It's like, look, going back to the 80s. But then it's interesting that like before that, you know, like when he's still in L.A., um, him being like, you know, <laughs> hitman killer or whatever, when he's still in LA and then toward the end, it's like you're outside of the 80s. But this chunk when he's like back in his hometown, um, you know, in a home for like the high school reunion, that's when it's like you're in the 80s. So I do think that it was one of the things I do really like about the soundtrack is like thinking so much about like the timing of that. And then it's like this middle time capsule. And then outside of that, they like opened it up a bit. Like there was a lot of intentionality there with yeah, I think there is a lot of like nostalgia and like, can you go home? You know, look at he goes back to his old house and it's like not there. It's blown up. It's a mini mart, right? So like, he literally yeah. calls his like therapist and he's like, I guess you can't go home. Um, so I really do like that. Like, you know, you have that whole middle part. Um, and again, intelligently using Mini Driver as like a radio host to, you know, as a reason to play songs from like the '80s. So it's not just like this weird like, oh, we only chose a song from the '80s. Like, it's there's a reason for it, like in the narrative of the film. So you're directly contradicting Ryan right now, just to be clear. And so they're well, not, yes, I don't yes think they're, no. I don't think they're in the same room, but uh, for you listening out there, I, there's a little bit of a war going oh, on. Oh, that's, here. that's part of the course. We rarely ever agree on these yeah. things. <laughs> well, I, okay. I guess I'll clarify my point with, <laughs> it's funny because now Daniel is hosting the show and, and Brandis and I are arguing with I love each it. other. Yes. Uh, it's worked. My plan has I, worked. I guess it doesn't. It doesn't kind of feel like that cynical nostalgia grab. Like the music is nostalgic, but it's not like that. Oh, let's put you know the most popular songs from the eighties oh, in this okay. movie. Yeah, like that sort of nostalgia grab, where you know where it's hitting you over the head with this is the eighties. <laughs> okay. Like we've got we've got Rio and we've got you know, in excess and we're going to just pound you with the biggest pop songs of the eighties. So, you know, it's, we're talking about the eighties. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Brandis? <laughs> I actually, I actually agree. And one thing that I will like pile on on that is one of my biggest issues with this. And I can't say soundtrack because technically the song isn't on the soundtrack, but it is used in the film at a very pivotal moment is the use of 99 Luft balloons. And it's like, that was such like, uh, if you want to like ask any person on the street of like a famous song from like pop song from that era, it's like, okay, that one, you know, everyone knows it's been covered a million times. And so not only did it feel like such a shallow cut to be playing like at that time, even though it was playing literally at the time of the high school reunion, so I can see it playing at a high school reunion, it just felt like it stood out in terms of like, that level of like super mainstream popularity it stood out in terms of like genre it also stood out and this is like a little bit of so so it it in a negative in a, in negative, a negative way, way yeah like it just felt like a huge like record scratch to me of like why is this song in this film like what is happening and then you know i don't want to get into it yet but in terms of like the lyrics um throughout this film like a lot of the songs the lyrics are very on the nose 
But then this one song, the lyrics like have absolutely nothing to do with like what's happening other than they're carrying a dead body wrapped in a red banner. And I'm like, okay, well now that's a stretch. (laughs) So like that song was super weird choice to me. So I think that I agree with you, Ryan, in that I think it's total nostalgia, but it's not like those super obvious, you know, like 80s nostalgia songs until you get to 99 Lift Balloons. And again, it's not on the soundtrack, but it is played for like a very large chunk of that scene where he's killing someone at the high school reunion. Again, spoiler. <laughs> well, I wonder if, if it, you know, all these things, I have, um, I've music supervised a few films. Um, they're totally small films. You've never heard of them. Most people have never heard of them. But they, it, was inter- I, it was an interesting experience to, to be involved with this. Um, and to try and uh, navigate like uh, these types of questions. And so for what I'm wondering, uh, though it never happened with a film that I worked on um, because these films were tiny films, I wonder about the studio and if because the songs that were being chosen and uh, were not the, the biggest of songs, they were important songs. I mean, these are, you know, all of them I think were fairly important songs might even have been the biggest songs of the specific bands that were represented at the time of their careers, but they were not huge mainstream successes. Echo and the Bunnymen isn't a huge mainstream success. So with 99 Luft Balloons, it was a song that crossed every genre. It just went huge. So I wonder if like that was actually a studio suggested compromise or, you know, here's three choices for this, you know, for this scene, right? We're, it's going to have music because there's a lot of movement going on, but there's no dialogue. So there's going to be music. Here are your three choices. And, you know, this is the one that they could decide on together. Perhaps it was the one the studio kind of wedged in there. Um, you know, I, I wonder. Yeah, it's it does raise a lot of questions because it felt very, you know, like just off brand for the people who are involved in this film, too. Like, it just felt like such a weird choice. So maybe it was like a studio thing. Um yeah, I just I was just like super shocked because obviously, like I said, it'd been so long. I did not remember at all that that song was in there. And I was just like, whoa, <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> well, you know, one of the other things that to think about, uh, again, this is about more about the perhaps the commerce of the film. But and you might not be interested in this. So I'll super to, interested. Uh, shut me off at any Always point. interested. <laughs> it's a soundtrack podcast. We're totally oh, okay. Interested. All right. Sorry. We'll go. We're going deep here, folks. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting to in this conversation, specifically about this song, this so 99 Lift Balloons is a huge song around the world. It's probably, you know, one of the biggest singles of all time, probably top top 50 biggest singles of all time around the world, I, I would guess. Um, and especially during um, the 80s at that, especially at that time. So if you're looking at 90s, it's being played on... Uh, co- modern commercial alternative radio as a nostalgia track in programming where radio terrestrial radio is still a huge format at that time still is now but it's diminished quite quite a bit at that point you know there's no iPod um, there's no um, streaming services this it's being played hugely like in excess bi- biggest songs like Duran Duran's biggest songs as alternative nostalgia on modern rock radio and some pop radio uh, as nostalgia. So we have that in the U.S. But 
dig it. We're, let's go over to Europe. And we're talking about The Clash. And we're talking about Joe Strummer being the, you know, the uh, soundtrack score uh, composer. And we're talking about all this Clash and English music that is big in this film. And when you talk about specifically about Europe and then even more micro, you're talking about England. We've all seen how songs reappear in the charts uh, from different decades. The Beatles had a number one hit in like in the 2000s. Um, you know, this is the, so at that time, 1997, they put out this film. It's got John Cusack and all these, you know, great of the moment actors. It's, you know, theoretically could be a big film and it. I think it did rather well. I don't know if it was a huge hit or if it was just a cult hit, but it was a it did fairly well. I wonder if they were also trying to figure out if they could come up with that combination where one of the tracks from the album soundtrack, which is a CD-based, you know, product at this point, they're selling soundtracks are being sold, and their massive ones are being sold, and it's a big deal, big commerce coming from soundtracks at that point. Uh, unlike now, where it's a you know a streaming you know soundtrack you're not necessarily buying a physical piece anymore and there's a diminished market dramatically in physical form then it's a huge you know physical form this is selling this could be a top 10 record in many markets around the world because of this sort of niche um music that it's bringing together in the soundtrack it's like the ultimate if it's the ultimate joe strum it's almost like the joe strummer soundtrack so if it's the Joe Strummer soundtrack and you're selling it that way, I wonder if this album charted as a soundtrack album, but for for sales as a as an album in the UK. I know it did well in the US. It so it must have done may must have done them way better than in the UK. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I'm just yeah. I'm, this is a lot of supposition. I, I, it's here, always but. follow the money when it comes to soundtracks. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it actually spawned a second volume. It did so well in the US. Oh, is wow. that right? Yeah. So there's the main soundtrack, and then you know they add some of the other songs that were in the movie that didn't appear on the first soundtrack. Then they made a second volume. They've done the same thing with like Days and Confused, and I think Pulp Fiction as well. See, I'm pretending I didn't know that because my, that would eliminate how smart I sounded, you know, just moments ago. <laughs> but I had such insight. I didn't know that. I thought we were talking about volume one as the, the only volume. <laughs> I did not know that there were two. <laughs> I don't think I knew there was two until I looked it up. I, I, don't, I didn't remember that. So I assure you folks listening out there, thousands of people that are listening, I'm, I'm totally, I didn't realize it. Yeah. Two small fun facts, though. You just mentioned Pulp Fiction. Did anyone else catch the uh, Pulp Fiction cutout in the mini mart? when um cusack and the like ghoul guy are like dueling it out <laughs> no i didn't yeah, see so, that like in the back of the mini mart we always have like the cold fridges with like all the beverages like way in the corner was this like life-size cutout of like the pulp fiction characters and i was like oh nice nod there <laughs> oh that's hilarious i did not see that did you see that ryan i think i remember I don't think I caught it on the second rewatch. I, I've watched this a lot because I don't know who bought it in my house, but we had a copy of Gross Point Plank on VHS, so I watched it quite a bit. So I remember like catching it like when I was like in high school with like friends, like, oh, it's like Pulp Fiction. 
Like, are they dunking on Pulp Fiction? Like, I'm not quite sure I think it's, what the reference nah, is. No, I think it's a love letter. Yeah, like, it's like, if, you know, like, you have the, like, super infamous scene of, like, the two main characters, well, I don't know main characters, but you have, like, the two hitmen kind of having this existential crisis, being, like, super philosophical about, like, their lives and their jobs. And then I feel like it's taking that, like, moment that everyone remembers from Pulp Fiction and then, like, spreading it out across the whole Yeah, movie, a lot of the reviews like, definitely point to, like, <laughs> there's a connection between the two movies. Or that, like, they were surprised that it was hard to get this movie made since there was the success of Pulp Fiction just a few years earlier. I'm surprised it was hard to get made since it was a Cusack film anyway. And, like, a whole family affair. Another yes. fun film. There were four I did catch of that in the credits. In this movie. <laughs> Yes, there are four Cusacks. Also, I think Joan made it. Like, she was the MVP of this film. Yeah, Absolutely I think Joan and uh, Alan Arkin, the, uh, the psychiatrist, I think they definitely provide, mm -hmm. like, really awesome comic relief. Like, everything is, like, so low-key and subdued to a certain extent yes. as far as, like, character-wise. And then you just have... I mean, I guess Dan Aykroyd is pretty out there, but... Mm -hmm. Like, between John Cusack and Minnie Driver, I feel like it's very, like, low-key intimate. <laughs> and then you have, like, people freaking out on the phone. <laughs> right? It's very restrained in terms of, like, it's hitmen, like, shooting each other up. Like, that's actually pretty restrained. But the calling the psychiatrist and John Cusack, like trashing the office those are like your most like wacky like high energy like moments i absolutely love it like they definitely stole the show i agree <laughs> uh going back to lift balloons just one more time before we like go back to the oops go back to the overall soundtrack um ryan before we started recording you had mentioned you were talking about the trailer you rewatch the trailer, oh, which yeah, is 90s always trailers? a oh my to go gosh. back and watch old movie trailers. because Yeah, it made it sound bonkers. like this wacky comedy, <laughs> and it's all set to the keyboard solo in Left Balloons, and it's like, what should you not do when you go back to your 10-year reunion? And it was just like, what? what? And it totally made it seem like this super wacky movie. And I mean, it is wacky, but like in a different <laughs> way. Like, like, if you watch the trailer, you would be expecting like pies in the face. And like, you know, you know, you know, stepping on rakes <laughs> and stuff like really slapstick and like just very broad. Like this movie is very. Uh, it's a definitely a different tone. Like it's, if you're thinking of like mainstream, like 90s, like it's the opposite of like Austin Powers, you know. <laughs> like you can enjoy both, mm -hmm. but you can't expect one. And yeah, it's other, definitely you know? not. Yeah, it's not like broad comedy. It's very like nuanced and like idiosyncratic. And it has like a lot of like indie feel to it, especially in that really wacky dialogue that's like happening between all the characters. Um, but I think that's also kind of like reflective in the movie, sorry, music choices, right? Because a lot of the songs are not 99 Luft Balloons. They're like, you know, deeper cuts, a little bit more nuanced. And you have that like big song that's just like, again, where did that come from? And then similarly in the trailer, the trailers cut a little bit more broad um, comedy. And then that, of course, is the song that the trailer is cut to. Not that movie trailers always include music from movies. They usually don't. Um, but that is just an interesting choice that I didn't know either because I hadn't watched the trailer. But it was just shocking to me that when you said, oh, it's cut to like the instrumental. And I was like, 
of all the songs, that's the one that the trailers cut to. But it makes sense. Like we were talking about like nostalgia, high school reunions, that song probably would be playing real life at that reunion. So it makes sense if that's what they're zeroing in on for that movie trailer, that that's the song that it would be cut to. That's true. I did watch the trailer and I was uh, to, to pick, I was like, you know, I was watching the trailers again. And I did think that when I saw um, this film, that it was a little bit different. And uh, but it gave in a way it gave me more excitement to watch it, even though it it really didn't rep represent it in the same way that I think the film, like you know, like you guys put far more eloquently than I will, didn't necessarily represent it. It it it, it got me to watch it, so you know, again, so I guess it worked <laughs> in its in its in its you know if that's what trailers are supposed to get you to watch it right so it worked it's slightly different than what it presented but that's not so unusual well i just think it's funny also i think on amazon like you know the description of the movie or maybe not the description but it's like oh featuring academy award nominee dan Aykroyd for little miss daisy or driving miss daisy and i'm like that's not what people remember dan Aykroyd from <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> it's like they're trying to make it sound like, oh, we got this uh, huge cast of Academy nominated and winning people to make that this was, movie. And that like, was mm. Dan's. Uh, that was Dan's agent who was trying to get Dan into more serious roles, um, saying like, you know, okay, when you here's how his credit here how here's his credit for the film. Like, right. That's what that was. Oh, we got the girl from Goodwill Hunting, and we got the guy from Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> yeah, the guy from Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, right. I saw that. We got too. the guy yeah. from Driving Miss. I read that too, and I was like, "That's not that's not the tone of this film." <laughs> yeah, be like it's the guy from Ghostbusters. Right. Yeah, I mean, or Coneheads, yeah, you know, like. I mean, any number of references. He, this is the last thing he was no, he would be known for. I mean. Kind of strange in a way, especially for touting like, this you... film when you're trying to get people to watch. It's like, yeah, Ghostbusters, and it, like that Ghostbusters. it's fun, that, and that it's <laughs> right. That was entertaining film. This is an entertaining film too. And anyway, yeah, that really strange, like very serious film. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's like, and now let's 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 put Orson Welles in, you know, from his role in Ghostbusters. What <laughs> you know, like yeah. Oh, you don't featuring Orson do Welles from That's... the Transformers movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. What about um, so we kind of talked about how we feel about the soundtrack overall and like genre wise. But how do we feel about um, like individual song choices at individual moments? I mean, I, it, it's weird because I think in a movie now, if you were to play Blister in the Sun, I'd be like, ah, uh, two on the nose. But I think it works a little bit better in this movie. I know that maybe you don't agree, Brandis. <laughs> no. <laughs> I love that you said uh, two on the nose. That's the <laughs> perfect segue for my feelings. All right. Strap in, everyone. Unpopular opinion. I actually strongly <laughs> dislike <laughs> this soundtrack, not necessarily as a musical collection, right? You know, like standalone, like the music and such. But I am so annoyed by these songs matching up with like the moments in the film. And I feel like it's going to be just like a rant of like when I went off on high fidelity, because it's a lot of the same reasons, although I've had more time to think about it. So maybe it's a little bit more eloquent, but 
so many times like these songs were like so on the nose for like what was happening like lyrically um like for example you open with i can see clearly now over like black screen and credits hard cut to like cusack like rinsing his eye out with like eyewash right and it's like okay come on really like and then you go a few more moments in and the song continues with the lyrics like obstacles in my way as like the bicyclist who's being being shot down like runs into like a cab um and then continue on with the lyrics and then it's like sunshiny day as like um dan like shoots down like the entire entourage of like security people it's like so perfectly on the nose that it's like distracting it's like literally like the lyrics in the song are just describing what's happening in the film um when cusack like goes and sees that his thing. house is like bulldozed it's like we're saying live and let die and it's like okay yeah 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 and then you're at the reunion where he's like freaking out because he's meeting all these people. We start hearing under pressure, um, but then cut to like the rest of the lyrics where it's like love dares us as he's looking into the eyes of this baby. And it's just so on the nose and it's just like being so cute with like those song selections lyrically that I was just like, I was so distracted. Granted, as I'm watching this film, I'm watching it for a podcast talking about soundtracks. So I'm paying a little bit more attention than the average watcher. But I was just like, I felt like it was so distracting. Well, you, <laughs> well if you've watched, if you're watching it also for the second time too, or third mm-hmm. time, but I, I think your points are super right. Uh, you know, right on the nose. It's, it's really interesting to, to again, having been part of the process in my own way as well, like trying to figure out what the, how to how to approach films um, in making these selections? It, it is it is a really interesting thing. I remember fighting with uh, my producers and directors, you know, innumerable times about um, this type of discussion specifically. Like it's just too obvious. Um, it's um, you know, if you're if what's the balance between what is you know on the page uh script the and the visual uh you know and then the sound like and soundtrack like what is the balance here that we're trying to strike and it can be real delicate so yeah. for example um i can envision in in you know in, in in thinking about what your criticisms are which i again i think are really valid um you know the if you think about switching up a quarter of these references and choices it would throw the balance completely maybe not completely but it would change the balance perhaps of how you feel mm-hmm. and it maybe those other selections would be fine in the if it was switched up just a little bit <laughs> but i think it is interesting that you point out there are a lot of really on the on the on point to on point um references that way it's interesting to me to think about how that balance would change with just three different choices or just four different choices and where they're placed. Yeah. Um, That's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. It's like, do that like maybe a couple of times, like with intentionality, but like maybe don't do it with like every single song. And then maybe Luft Balloons wouldn't have been so weird for me because I'm like, why are you talking about like bombs and warfare when he's carrying a body just because it's in a red banner? What? Like that wasn't on the nose. That was really weird. (laughs) 
but yeah, no, it's like for me, it's but, like finding, yeah, I think, it's like finding that balance between like, yes, is it lyrically relevant, but also like the genre, the instrumentation, the energy of the song, like, does that match the mood of like what's happening or the mood of the characters? And I feel like not just this film, but also high fidelity as well. It's like so far in the camp of like, what are the lyrics and not necessarily what is that instrumentation and like tone and, you know, energy of the song too. I think you just don't like Kathy Nelson because she was a soundtrack supervisor for both films. Well, I mean, it makes sense, and Also, I think right? Cusack like, had a huge hand in both as well. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is there's a pattern here. Like, I think that together they make these choices of focusing more on lyrics than necessarily like the energy or like the pacing and in their song selection. And I think that maybe I just don't like gel with that well. <laughs> Which what was I, the other film they worked on? High together? Fidelity. High Fidelity. Oh, they, oh, she worked on that too. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Which is why I said unpopular opinion a- because High Fidelity is like one of the most beloved soundtracks, you know, like of all time. And I was like, nope, not yeah. here for it. <laughs> I am going to disagree with you. I, I really do like um, the juxtaposition of um, I can see freely now, like this very kind of like kind of gentle and positive uncynical song with this guy getting ready to shoot somebody like i think it's played kind of for humor there so i i I mean i some of the other examples i can see why it would be kind of annoying how on the nose there but i feel like that one is kind of played for like laughs like it's definitely a not what you're expecting when you hear that song is i'm gonna get ready to to not take this guy out. See, in that respect alone, I would have loved it. I would have loved the positive upbeat, you know, like going into he's about to like gun people down with like a cold, hard killer because he's like just doesn't care. It was specifically the words I can see clearly now over a black screen cut to Visine. <laughs> it was like, seriously, like you didn't do that like by accident. If it had just been like, you know, I can see clearly now as, you know, he's like, preparing not looking down a scope of a gun because that also would have been too on the nose but like just you know like cleaning his gun or like putting it together as he's like about to create this like do this contract kill i'd have been like oh nice juxtaposition there it was literally just those specific words in the lyrics literally matched up to these scenes of the shot <laughs> oh I, I mean there's a there's a, a bunch of other examples that you didn't even bring up so i can that i have noted here as well so like, for example, um, uh, Rudy Can't Fail, um, you know, they're on the mission, uh, you know, uh, in the cars. They're, you know, they're kind of one set of, you know, uh, Cusack's uh, uh, stalkers are following him in the car. And, uh, you know, they're, they're tr- basically, you know, they're both trying to kill each other in essence. But, you know, like, it's a little bit, it, that to me came up as, one of these things where, oh, I'm not sure that really works so well. I love the song again. It's not about whether you love the song. It's whether or not it fits in the movie and is a distraction. I remember I noted that. Another thing that I thought did work, though, that wasn't on the nose was um, when uh, the mark gets blown up and they use um, Ace of Spades. That, to me, was like a good usage. Like that worked because it wasn't so on the nose. And um, it also had this because it's, you know, such a uh, also, you know, a, a really important, important track. It 
it was used in a way that I hadn't seen, but also with a, a humor, and uh, which I really like that because when you think when I think of Ace of Spades, it's 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 not about humor. Um, I, so using it in that humorous way, I thought that was actually a good touch. Um, but I, you know, again, I, I would agree with you uh, that most of the um, uh, a lot of a lot of the choices were so on the nose. It, it, Sometimes they were distracted. I agree with you there. Another thing, that, another thing I thought was interesting um, that I wish they would have used because I thought that um, it could have um, helped um, was when she, uh, Minnie Driver is one of her uh, voiceovers, like in between, um, you know, um, in, in between tracks when she's on, on air as the DJ, she mentions that there's like a, a palace uh, show that you can go and check, you know, that they're playing at, at playing that night. And like, if they had played a palace song that put perhaps would have really changed the whole, you know, not the whole thing, but because it's such a different, um, you know, palace is such a different style of, of, of music as a whole. That would have been really interesting to do that for me as a, as a listener, um, you know, it's distracting when you know all the songs so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I knew every song so well. And so I like all the songs individually. And I love The Clash. And I love Joe Strummer. So I love all those things. But um, when you know it all, it does, it does, I think it does really hurt, or not hurt, but it, it changes your, 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 your feeling about what's going on. It, it ends up uh, just uh, just being more of a distraction if you're that familiar. And then because it also, just like Lift Balloons was, you know, this huge song, all these other songs are big to me in the sense that I know them so well. So they all have a representational, they have some meaning to me in some way. So I'm think it's, rec- my, my mind is recalling those meanings, whether I'm uh, realizing exacting, exactly why it is or not. Mm-hmm. So it does have this, uh, and they're obviously making this as a calculated choice that this is going to be good for people, which, you know, that's why this is a pop art film and not a, you know, not a art film. You know, it's a pop film. It's a mainstream film. That's what it is. It had some, maybe this would have been considered an edgier soundtrack at a time, but again, at the time, I think that soundtracks were done this way okay we're let's have the alterna soundtrack or are we gonna have the mainstream soundtrack we're gonna have the jazz soundtrack for the older folks you know what's you know is it gonna be james taylor you know like is, is it a james taylor and carol king soundtrack you know like it, it, these are your different buckets how yeah. you know and that's how it was done back then and i think that's very uh very much part of uh, uh, music supervision as a, as a whole, like what's, what bucket is this going to be in? And I think the good thing I think about now is that, um, I, there are so, I think it's a lot broader and I think your options are a lot uh, more, um, uh, there's a lot more options out there. Now, I think, I don't think the buckets are as clearly defined. The hits aren't quite as big. Some of the hits are bigger than they've ever been because they've been streamed (laughs) quantifiably you can see they've been spring you know streamed a billion times so you know when you choose rihanna's umbrella you know that it's like this thing and it's its own bucket but by the same token there are so many songs and and so many different artists that have really rabid followings now that i've never heard of you've never heard of because you can't hear of them all Mm -hmm. and somehow they found this really 
uh, their song, this song has found a huge audience now, like TikTok, Reel, whatever it is, and you might not have ever heard anything else by that artist. So I, I, all of this is really fascinating to me. Yeah, I agree with you. Like in modern day, you know, like supervision, you do have a little bit like more freedom to be a little bit more experimental with like the different genres and the different people versus like sticking to those like more obvious broader choices like you're saying like to that and in addition to 99 list balloons feeling like a little bit too big i also thought that guns and roses live and let die i was like oh wow okay <laughs> that's like that's a real banner song here like especially like at this moment because it was you know he sees his house as being bulldozed and i already said that lyrically it's on the nose but it felt like a very it was supposed to be very poignant kind of like quiet small moment but then you're putting it against like a song that's been played on the radio like ad nauseum right and it's just like that was distracting too and then I also like what you said about when you're so familiar with songs like yes it's like what do you bring personally into it but even if you don't bring personal emotions into it if you just have heard it so many times you're going to be singing along in your head instead of paying attention to the moment in the film right like when you're playing a song like that. So it was just like, yeah, like live and let die for a number of reasons was also a record scratch moment for me because it was just like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so, so counterpoint. Yes. Um, so I was reading this 20th anniversary retrospective of the soundtrack on the AV club by uh, Gwen, Gwen Inat. I think that's how you say the name. And I think they do this in high fidelity too, which is why you don't like it. And it's, kind of this is the soundtrack of how the main character is feeling mm -hmm. like the headline of this article is gross point blank soundtrack reveals what its main character couldn't mm -hmm. and so they kind of see it as this is their inner soundtrack and especially because you know martin blank kind of a little bit more on the stoic side because he is kind of this person who can compartmentalize his emotions to be able to kill people. Mm -hmm. I feel that. I agree with that. And I don't hate that. But again, is there a way that you can do it through also like tone and instrumentation and pacing and things like that that aren't literally just hanging your laurels on the title of the song or like a line from like the chorus, right? <laughs> I think at the time, this really harkens back to the time so dramatically uh, in the commerce. You know, they wanted a hit soundtrack and they wanted to sell CDs from it because that's a big revenue source for the soundtrack at the time. That was a big deal. I don't know who the who put out the soundtrack um, off the top of my head. I don't have those notes in front of me. I bet you Ryan does. Um, I bet you you do, Brenda. Uh, Brenda. But, uh, uh, I don't, but uh, you know, I it, based on who that put that out as well, you can tell it, it, it was a, a it wasn't a Disney film, but if Hollywood Records put out the um, soundtrack, um, it would be one thing. And I, because I worked in that field of the music side of it, I I would be uh, some sometimes I'd be able to help figure out. Oh, okay, well, here's what they were trying to do, probably, but obviously. They were trying to have a hit soundtrack and that and i don't what i don't like is when i that's what i didn't like about music uh, soundtracks of the time is that they had to have this component of a hit soundtrack now it might be a hit song because things are streaming it's not 
you know, again, being sold physically anymore. It's a little different. You can focus on one song. That's different. This was like, whenever it hits soundtrack, I went to sell a whole CD. It's a, you know, and it felt very much like, here's the film and we're going to have this soundtrack and it's, we're going to try and sell them both because we're not sure the film is going to sell, but we think we can sell a hit soundtrack. So, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's, um, what is it? What's the way of, of putting it? Let's, uh, you know, try and give our best chance to make back as much money as possible because we're not certain of the film or something. I don't know. Maybe that's one. I don't know. I think the film is actually in some ways, the film is better than the, than the soundtrack indicates uh, in terms of uh, how do I, what do I mean by this? What I'm trying to say is that I think that the film's ideas are really good and that it, it, that the soundtrack can be like we've, like I agree with you, that can be overwhelming independently they both work, you know, independently, both the soundtrack works on its own and the film would work on its own. But this soundtrack is so big that it kind of over, overcooks in my head, perhaps, um, um, what the, how good the film might even be. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's so like, I think what, what, what this conversation is about is, is really back to that, that it's overwhelming in some places for some of us. Yeah. I don't want to speak for Ryan. <laughs> for two thirds, at least. <laughs> I think you convinced me of this, honestly. I don't know that I went into it thinking like this either, and that's not a bad thing. It's it either like it, this is a good critical conversation about this. I haven't thought about some of these issues in a while, and it's cool. So I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I can see Brandis's points. I don't think I necessarily disagree with them, but I think that you can enjoy them because there are on the nose as well. Like it's not distastefully done where it like completely. No, no, no. I don't, I don't think so. I think that there's different, here's what I think. I think there's different types of, of listeners for this and viewers of this film. So if you go into it and you don't know any of the music, then there you go. It's not going to be an issue. None of what we're talking about is really going to be an issue, right? You can just enjoy the film. But if you're like a super music nerd and you've been like listening to, you know, um, deep cuts, um, you know, by uh, by the Clash and uh, and uh, you know Echo and the Bunny Men, and this is your like genre that you've been, then it's all like, well, we know this really well. It has such these songs already have such meaning. Then you're in a different sort of populace, and I think that for the music supervisor or the salespeople of this, the people making the film, I think that, you know, they're trying to quantify it. Everything's about, you know, it's a major, major studio film. Got John Cusack, got a big cast in there. Going to be big. Soundtrack's going to be big. Everything's going to be big. You know, like, (laughs) it's big. (laughs) Well, I think Uh. this soundtrack is trying to toe that line between, like, it is kind of artsy, but it is kind of big as well. Oh, great. Right? And, Agre- and Kathy Nelson you. has done both, right? So she's uh, done Eternal Sunshine, but she's also done, you know, Love Actually and Armageddon. Like, you know, she's she has a broad range of what she's done. And I think this is trying to find that middle ground because that's kind of, it's, you know, a studio picture, but it's not like a big budget picture. Like it feels very small. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not, 
this is not the Fast and the Furious, you know, this is a much smaller sort of film and it's meant to feel smaller. So it's trying to toe that line in a lot of ways and maybe it doesn't work like, you know, Blister in the Sun, like that's not a deep cut, right? And right, no. I think when I saw the movie, it didn't really do much for me. I wasn't like, oh, cool. Blister. I was like, I guess. But yeah, you know, there's a, yeah. but, but think, for me, like that... it was, it was, a, it was an introduction to a lot of music um, that maybe I wasn't familiar with. And obviously there's not no streaming, right? So it was hearing a different side of the clash or hearing um, maybe some, you know, a different side of the jam that I wasn't used to. So in a lot of ways for me, it was very cool. But also, yeah, I was like, oh, live and let die. Okay. <laughs> if they, I really, I think they should have used a power song in one of those more, in the one, like that one moment where, uh, the you know, uh, where John Cusack's character is like, kind of like, you know, coming clean to Mini Driver about everything. And it's that one sort of tender moment where it's, there, it isn't rushing around. Like if they were going to use something, that would have been a time to use that. I don't think they use any music in that particular scene, if I'm not mistaken. They might have used score, they might have done nothing, or something so subtle that you was barely there, which is also fine. I, I wouldn't have used it in a big way, but it could have been just a, an instrumental part of, you know, uh, Will Oldham strumming uh, acoustic guitar. Um, you know, th th that's the type of thing where I think it would have been nice to have that sort of subtle thing. I guess the, I think the, the point of all this, we keep going back to it, but there's a lack of subtlety. It can work by design or it doesn't necessarily work by design. In this case, I think it works sometimes and doesn't work other times for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as for like the overall like music selection standing on its own, like, yeah, I think it's like a great collection of songs with the exception of Blister in the Sun because I just personally cannot handle that song. And so it was insult to injury. That That's your problem. That's twice. your problem. <laughs> We're gonna That's your problem. That's your problem. Yeah, it's my problem for sure. <laughs> it has been stuck in my head. It is still stuck in my head now. And I take personal offense. So maybe I'm coming into this a little hot because I'm still like offended. <laughs> offended. Wow. She's You're offended. double offended. Wow. Offended. This is a strong word. That song just okay, really well, grates um, my brain. <laughs> I, I totally get it. I listened to it so much at one point in the 80s and then didn't want to ever hear them again. And I was wrong because actually their other albums are actually really good. And they got they really uh, faced a lot of um, uh, real problems because of, that, of how important that one record was. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a different, different topic for a different time. Yeah, that happens to a lot of artists. So they get famous for this one song that's maybe not really indicative of like their overall like genre or tone or like offering. And then it's like, well, but that's what you're known for. <laughs> well, it becomes a problem because they want to play other songs and no one is interested until the last how, couple songs because that's how what they're dare they? For. How dare they? <laughs> they want to play other songs. As a manager, I'm like, you're not playing the hit? What's the problem with you? <laughs> Give the people what they want. Yep. At least a little bit. At least a little bit. But, uh, you know, it, it also, I mean, I, talk, in dealing with artists and having to play, you know, that song, it, it does really present a challenge. Like, it's really interesting to see it. And um, as a musician myself and so forth, not having any 
hits per se, but just understanding that, wow, you have to play the same songs. It can be a lot. I really appreciate what they go through with that. It's a, it's an emotional, um, it can be an emotional, uh, you know, ride to do that every night. And very interesting to think and to find out how, uh, it's not discussed very often, but how people deal with that, um, having to play the same songs every night, like, you know, hence the reaction to that by certain artists like Bob Dylan, uh, you know, who won't play, you know, that's, it's a very interesting thing to be known for and then have to deliver and the expectation. I mean, Pavement had that and they, in, in this, these tours, these reunion tours, they, I thought they did a really good job of, uh, of, of handling that in New York city when Pavement played, they, um, you know, they did a different sets each night. It was mm-hmm. four, four, four nights or five nights that they were played, and they they did different sets each night, and people were you know then discussing like, well, which set did you get? You know, which songs right. were there for you? Which was super cool. Of course, they only allowed me to go to one, one, one particular night for me, and I'm a little pissed at them about that. So, you know, Bob, I'm really pissed at you. Um, <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> no, they they they're great. They're so helpful. They were so helpful with the book. So. I'm very, very grateful. Let's go back and talk about this art book. Okay. Yeah, the pavement, the pavement so art book. So you knew Steve. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Steve Keen art book, which Peyton, uh, there is a essay in here from Stephen Malcolmus. And there's a little uh, section in here about the pavement trees and stuff. Yeah, there's a, there's a quote. Yeah, there's a quote from Steve, um, Stephen um, in there. There's... um. Yeah, uh, they they were you know they're so helpful in, in in helping to get this book together and and so helpful in getting the word out about it. It wouldn't have been made without their help. So I'm very appreciative to them in ma- helping make the Steve Keen art book. And so, how far back do you go with Steve? Uh, so Steve Keen and I met in 1993 or four. Um, I worked at a record label and one of the articles in the book is on a venue called the thread waxing space, which was a very a short lived, but important uh, venue and art space where indie rock shows took place. And Steve Keen got his start really in New York or he credits getting his start um, in uh, at the thread waxing space where he would basically hang his pieces from floor to ceiling hundreds of pieces at a time. And as he still does, uh, he offers them for a few dollars a piece um, to be purchased on an honor system with cash in a big wood container that you stick your cash in and you just take, pick off the wall what you want, put on the honor system, give them five, 10, 20 bucks in the, in the, in the, in the honor system uh, till, and you walk away with art. And it was as simple as that. And he, he was always at the, it seemed like he was all, he always had uh, artwork up at the thread waxing space. And so when I worked at this uh, record label called zero hour, we ended up doing the thread waxing space live, a president, the presidential compilation. And he was the obvious choice uh, by the thread waxing space people to be their, you know, their visual, component for their album and so they chose him 
And I was lucky enough to work at the record label and go see lots of shows at the Threadwax space. And um, I was then introduced to Steve as the person who was providing the artwork for the, for the you know commercial vinyl and CD product that we were going to put out on cassette at the time too. And uh, like uh, uh, then you know he came into the office. He said, "Here's the cover," and I had uh, a designer on hand who also was a big part of the book named Ryan McGinnis. Uh, wrote a, a big essay on Steve Keen's process and how he works, um, and and as it would as it would be, Ryan um, was uh, you know who I had hired as a freelancer uh, all the time at Zero Hour. He was so talented, and so I basically then had them work out how it was going to work. What in Ryan put together this package? It was Steve's images. It was Ryan's design. And uh, we had the Threadwaxing Space Live record that was made, which included a, a bunch of real indie stuff, but including Guided by Voices and a band called Governor and uh, uh, BQE. But these were all bands that played and, and played important roles in, uh, in the Threadwaxing Space's history. And so it was a really cool thing to meet him at that point. And then from there, on and off, I would hire him for different album projects where he would create original album artwork for the label. We did a Christmas album that was a, a takeoff on a Phil Spector album that was called A Christmas Carol for You, I think, or uh, something along those lines. And where I had, uh, you know, it wasn't so unusual, but at the time it felt like I'm going to have Steve recreate this Phil Spector album, but in his hand, but as it would be, that's what he does. Yes, Steve Keen, for those that don't know, is the painter not only behind the Steve Keen art book, but is known for painting his, his record collection. So there's a whole section of the book of album covers that are called album art tributes. And these are basically uh, albums that he either, he was a DJ, so he either played these records on his radio show himself, or he loved the design of the album art that he could then replicate in his own hand. And so these are all what uh, fascinated me about his work at first. It was more in the line of, okay, he did Wowie Zowie. Okay, he did Fun Trick Noisemaker. Okay, I hired him for the Threadwax Space and this Phil Spector record and a couple other things. Cool. Uh, but then I realized uh, as I was getting on with it, they had all these other sides to him artistically. And over the years, I collected other works from him that are not music based. Maybe they have a, a, a nod to something music based, but it's these are just other pieces um, that he had. And so I just love it all. Anyway, so my history with Steve is, you know, nearing three decades at this point. And I realized uh, in terms of why the book was made, which is probably the next question, is that um, anticipating questions is my specialty. Um, is, is You know, it just seemed like, wow, you know, I have all these pieces. I'm, I'm a big collector of his. There's lots of big collectors out there. Um, shouldn't there be a book? And it just didn't seem like anyone was jumping up to do it. And I just think it it became like this thing where it was too big to consider being done. 
for those that don't know, Steve Keen is perhaps the most prolific painter in the history of histories. He's painted over 300,000 pieces by his own hand. I think it's more like 400,000 at this point um, because that number has been 300,000 for about 10 years. Um, he paints 50 pieces a day, four days a week, and he's been doing this for 30 years. That's insane. And so, and it, and it is insane. It's truly insane, but it's beautiful also. And uh, it's beautiful to watch him paint all these different pieces at once. And they're not 50 of one type. They're usually four of a kind and usually between 10 and 12, 10 and 15 sets. So here he's, he's basically, he has a, just to describe this for people, how he works very briefly, he has a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where he has something called uh, the cage, it's a chain link fence cage, literally. I think the, the, I think it's eight foot high. You know, it's probably 14 feet by 14 feet by 14 feet, something around that. And it's a cage and he hangs pieces of three eighths inch plywood, uh, you know, 50 pieces of plywood around the cage uh, as his easel. And then in essence, in rows and columns, four of a kind, 12 sets to 15 sets at a time each day he paints these pieces and he paints them by color so he's and like a screen printing process so big swashes of color first with as the paint then he might have to mix more paint so slightly different swatch next to it and then it goes around and around with acrylic paint for those that don't know acrylic paint is uh, a quick drying paint so he can literally like do one column of paint one column of, of art uh, on you know one level, if you will, then go to the next column and do that column. And by the time he works his way all the way around the cage in a somewhat circular motion, uh, you know, he'll that first one that he started with has dried. So he can paint over it the next layer. So he's basically going around and around and around and around all day long painting these 50, 60 pieces at a time until he's done. And it's he starts at 8 a.m. and he finishes at 5 p.m. And that's what he does every day. And he's done this for 30 years. And so, again, in knowing this, I just, I was lucky enough to work with him and see every, you know, see him do this so many times. It's such a beautiful thing to watch. It's really interesting to me how his mind is operating because I don't know if I'm painting myself a good enough picture in describing this, but it's like playing four-dimensional chess, mm -hmm. like painting 50 pieces at a time. You're, you're trying to figure out if you have enough paint to do this highlight, how you're going to get to the next painting and what that painting is, because each set, again, is a different set. There's four, four of a kind, 12 to 14 or 15 uh, different sets at a time. So he's painting from referencing one photo on each column. So again, I don't know, this might be a little too, uh, too deep uh, in terms of the description, but the point is there's a lot to do. He does it really quickly and somehow his mind is attuned mm -hmm. uh, to, to work this way. And to me, it's just fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, that is such a unique process and a unique way to like go at this like I love hearing that and especially just thinking about the composition of one piece 
you know, in and of itself is like such a unique thing to be tackling, but then to be doing it, you know, all around like the room with like so many different compositions and having to time it, you know, like across the different pieces. No, I find that totally fascinating. You know, one of the other things that's a little easier to describe, but it's also fascinating to me about him again, I'm just fascinated by the guy. So like, I'm just an Uber fan really is what it comes down to. Um, but he, if you were to buy pieces from him, which you can from stevekeen.com when he allows you to, sometimes he doesn't allow you to, but the page, it's a one page website. It has a one or two line description that says when the, when you, when it's open, when the, when the store is open, you can order from him. It says, six pieces for $70, including shipping, randomly selected, and there's a buy button. You don't get to choose what you're buying from him. Now, there there's secondary markets online, eBay, you can find his stuff, and you can choose one specific from someone that they're selling. That's fine. But if you're buying from him, you don't get to choose, unless it's a show that you're at, you see him painting. If you're buying from his website, you don't get to choose. And there's something really beautiful about a self-curated uh, package of paintings that arrives between three and six months after you get it that just arrives and it's wood and it's like the size of a small microwave. And he usually puts in eight pieces, mm -hmm. nine pieces. And he's just, he's curating it for you. And there's something uniquely special about that. And again, this, so, I think what he does visually is striking and special. I think the way he delivers it is striking and special. And if you add all this together that he's been doing this for 30 years, he's been providing art for the people at an access point where anyone can afford this type of art or most people can afford this level of artwork. We're not talking about going to a Christie's auction. We're not mm -hmm. talking about going to a Chelsea gallery. We're talking about everyday people being able to get real art painted by hand, one person's hand. It's just, a, to me, this is a really special thing that should be celebrated that he's offered this. And much like um, the 90s music scene, the uh, punk band Fugazi, uh, who was known for doing 20 years of shows for $5 tickets, no matter what, everything was a $5 ticket, no matter where you went, it was $5. Much in the same way, Steve Keen has delivered artwork. And I think there's something truly beautiful about the way this is being handled. It's very, he, I don't think he necessarily thinks it's beautiful. I just think it's about him. It's about, it's about efficiency. He creates his pieces. He needs to get them out the door. He doesn't <laughs> want to sit with them. That is, this is true. He does not want the inventory to be sitting around. It's got to get out. He paints, you know, 200, 300 pieces a week. They all have to go out because he doesn't have room to store them all. So it, for him, it's like, okay, I got to get them out. That's why I'm getting, that's why you're getting eight pieces of six because I don't know. Get it out. Get it out. You know, it's, it's a crazy thing, but this is true. Like, it's very true. I Just the other day, I brought back a piece. It's a piece of furniture that I got from a retrospective that I put on. And it's a bench and it wasn't painted. He's a, you know, he's a woodworker amongst other things because he worked with wood primarily. So he made these benches. People could sit and look at his art with his bench that he made for his, you know, for his show. 
I wanted one of these pieces. I took the bench um, and it wasn't painted. So I brought it back to us. Hey, Steve, can you, can you paint this one too? He looked at me like, oh man. You know, like I'm taking advantage of my position at this point, <laughs> but I know I, but I told him, I know, I know this is not something because you don't, he doesn't want anything to be returned. That's the thing. He doesn't want the piece there. Not because he doesn't want to do the painting. Mm -hmm. It's more like he's already moved on from that piece. It left yeah. the studio. You know, yeah. the, the mm -hmm. boat has left the dock. <laughs> you know, like it does not you know, big cruise line does not come back, you yeah. know, like only it, looking forward, not back. <laughs> that's right. You know, one of the other things about the book that's interesting is, you know, I, he didn't want anything to really do with the book um, in terms of input. Um, I would have been perfectly happy to get input from him, but he was like, no, 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 it's your thing. Because he doesn't, he's only looking forward. He doesn't want to like look at it. And I don't, I think even today, he would probably, if he was being interviewed, he would probably say that he hasn't seen the whole book yet uh, because to him, it's about working. It's about the art is him working. He wants to paint every day. That's what he does. So like, it's my job. It's our job to celebrate him. If we want to celebrate him, it's my job to make the book, whatever book I wanted to make, because it's not going to be what he wants. If the book itself to him is, it encapsulates a greatest hits. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. That's the biggest compliment I could get from it. It is a greatest hits. I curated the book because I, I wanted to find the things I thought would resonate with the most people and showcase the, also the broad scope of his works as best I can because who knows if anyone will ever make another book on him. I hope someone does because there's surely enough material to do it. But like, if not, it better be the biggest badass book that you'll find because it's got to represent this guy who has affected thousands of people's lives just by distributing it by hand, by care, to all these people around the world. So it needs to represent. That's one of the reasons why it's such a big book, is that it needs to show the volume of mm -hmm. his work. He's made all these pieces, given all these away. The packages that arrive to people are huge packages that arrive to people. It needed to show the love that he gives to us. It needed to be represented in this book. And I hope that that comes across. Yeah, it's an amazing book. Well, thank you. <laughs> we tried. We tried really hard. You know, that was the goal. The goal was to make a great book. The goal was to celebrate an artist that has truly affected me and helped me and helped me to realize that I can collect things um, they don't have to be, you know, $10,000, $2,000. It just is meaningful to me. This is what art is meaningful to me in this way. The pieces that I have that are mean the most to me, that's many of which are in the book, are ones that I got for five or 10 bucks that were just humorous pieces. One of them I'll describe visually uh, is a, 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 a bust of, of former President Richard Nixon. Not my favorite president by any stretch, but by Steve's hand, my favorite president, for sure. Uh, it's a bust of Richard Nixon, and it, he, generally when he does his work, he puts some type of non-sequitur copy or text on the painting. And it's usually just draw people in to ask people to look at it a little more carefully. And it's always something, a lot of times it's something very funny. In this case, so it's Richard Nixon bust, and it says, we saw Beck at Knitting Factory. What? Like, you know, why would this... <laughs> 
But, and that to me, I wake up to that. It's in my bathroom. It, I wake up to that every morning. It makes me laugh. Still, like, I got that, you know, 25 years ago. It still makes me laugh. You know, that's when you know you have to do something, I think, in from my world as a producer. When things resonate for 25 years, well, okay, we should probably do, make a book on this. And if no one else is jumping up to do it, I guess I'm the guy to do it. Before we continue with our episode, here's a word from our sponsor. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Do you know how he got involved with that one Stephen Colbert episode where he was dueling with the Decemberists? Oh my God, that's a great story. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. Uh, I'll try and synthesize it because it can go along because I'm a little wordy if you haven't noticed. But uh, it's really interesting. At one point, he was a huge Colbert Report fan, Colbert Report, uh, the first show, um, fan. One of the wonderful things about Robert, when he was making more music and we were working more closely together about this stuff, is he, whenever he wrote a hit song in his head, was a hit song, hit being whatever he thought was the catchiest song ever of the day, um, he would call me. And sometimes that would be more than once a day. And sometimes it was, it was most of the time it was every day. He'd call me and he'd leave a message say, Dan, you'll never guess what, you know, what, 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 I, what I did. And I'm like, you know, I'm listening to my voicemail like, I know what you did, Robert. You're going to say, you, you think you wrote a hit song. And I'm going to be happy because of that. Because who isn't happy hearing that someone else is so happy about what they just created? And then you get to represent it. Like, it's the most beautiful thing. So I would constantly get voicemail messages. Dan, you'll never guess. I wrote this hit song. I'm like, yes, awesome. You wrote a hit song. And that made me feel good, too. But anyway, so he said at one point he called me and he said, and I wrote the song for Stephen Colbert. You know, do you think you can get it to him? I was like, well, did you record it yet? No. Okay, we'll go record it. Anyway, there was a certain time frame where they were working on these this end of year show where Stephen was doing a guitar contest. It was like a guitar off, guitar playing contest. And it was called mm -hmm. Countdown to Guitar Mageddon. And so it's being announced that this is happening and, but you know, the show, it's still off in the future, but they've announced it because it's such a funny title. Um, and I think they're also trying to just get the word out because it was the end of the year, you know, it's kind of a big show. They wanted to promote it. And Robert heard this, oh, and Steven says he's going to, you know, going to play and he's going to be part of this duel, guitar duel. I'm going to write, I'm going to, I have a song for him. It became... Uh, you know, Steven Steven is the song and it's available to check out. Super funny. It's basically, Robert said, I wrote Steven like 
the best like um, rally song. So in essence, like he's going to listen to the song, he's going to get inspired to win. So he wrote a song like to his hero Stephen Colbert, as that to cheer, to get him ready, like a coach would get you know a, a, an athlete ready before a big game. That's what Stephen Stephen is. And it's super hilarious. And I he sent so the next day, literally, he sent me a demo, which was the recording of it. And I was like listening to it, listening, laughing my ass off. And it was so funny and so great and so catchy and just in, in some ways so stupid, but so um, funny. Um, and so uh, in any case, uh, I got it. And I was, he's like, well, can you get it to Stephen Colbert? I don't know. You know look, I'm going to try. Like, you know, we, we have people, we have record label try. And lo and behold, what happened was I sent it, the first person I sent it to was our publicist. Uh, her name's Allison Elbel at the time. Um, still her name, but she was our publicist at the time, not anymore. But she's awesome. And Allison, um, I, I sent it to her and she said, uh, I asked her like, hey, do you have any contacts with Colbert, maybe you can get it to someone over there, you know, don't know, maybe. And she's like, you know, you know that my partner sitting next to me is Colbert's press agent, right? <laughs> no, why would I know that? Like, that, that never came up before. How would I know that? So she's like, I'll, I'll, I'm going to play it for the first time and she's going to hear it right now. I'm going to bring her over. And so she immediately said, like, they're laughing hysterically about it. She's like, oh, they're going to send it to Steven directly immediately. Um, and so this was like, uh, I got it on a, I, I think that literally uh, we, Robert and I, Robert first mentioned he was going to uh, record it on a Monday. I got it on a Tuesday. I sent it off on a Wednesday. She got it that Wednesday. On Friday, we got a call for um, uh, from the from the show to ask if Robert would play on the show. Within a week, we had got on the next Monday. By the next Monday, we had been offered this. Um, Robert had been offered to uh, ask to play on the show. So within a week of writing this song and a day of recording it, and then a day of getting it to the publicist we had gotten offered this found out down the road um that steven walked into the production meeting on friday night of that first week singing the song <laughs> i mean i how, love that so like you, I when you picture him listening to it before every time he has to like go record a show right like he is pumping himself up with the song <laughs> it's a rally song it's a Stephen Colbert rally song. So how did this happen? Robert Schneider. Yeah, I heard. That's how is, it's isn't Stephen also like just in general like a big like Elephant Six fan? Yeah, he used to play. He used to play all kinds of E Six stuff before his shows, like to warm up the audience and stuff like that. So um, he's he's really always been. Uh, I mean, that's what he said to me. I mean, you know, I'm not. Uh, close with Steven, right. but we could have that conversation. But I'm sure when he was like, Robert Schneider wrote me a song, like, I'm sure. He wasn't like, yeah. who's this Robert Schneider oh. guy? 
Oh, no, 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 no. He definitely was not like that at all. It was definitely like he knew who Robert was. Um, and he was, he's like, I think he, you know, he's a massive Neutral Milk Hotel fan. So he knew that Robert produced those albums and co wrote a lot of those songs, et cetera. So, like, he knew. But by the same token, he had the rally song of all rally songs. Right. Now, you'll have to have me on another time or we'll have to talk offline about the actual performance of that song on the show because that's a longer story and equally fun and amazing. And only only Robert Schneider could accomplish this in this particular way. Just happy to have been along for the ride. Yeah, we'll have to save that story for when Nicole's feeling better because I'm sure she would love to hear that story. (laughs) Yeah, she's going to be very envious of this episode. (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much, Daniel. Um, huge honor to have you on the show. Oh, the honor is mine. Thanks for you know, thanks for a fun conversation, and uh, you know, being able to talk about the Steve Keen art book is always something I'm super, uh, you know, super excited to do. So, um, thank you so much for being interested. Um, um, so, if people want to find the art book, where is the best way to find? It? I know you could find it on like Amazon or. Well, or wherever yeah, you can the find best books, but. the best way to get it is um, literally at um, uh, Hat and Beard Press. So it's um, I'm just gonna type it out here because I can't, I always forget that I screw things up here. But um, yeah, it's it's just it's called Hat and Beard, H A T A N D B E A R D dot com. Hat and Beard is the is my co-publisher on this. And they're really the best place to get it. Um, uh, you can, of course, get it on Amazon, but it would be better if you went in this particular direction. Um, um, but uh, anyway, yeah, just don't don't worry about where you get it. Just go get it, you know. <laughs> cool. And we'll put that in our show notes. So if you want to find the book, you can check the description and we'll have uh, links to Daniel's webpage and to Hand and Beard Press. Awesome. Um, well, I really, again, I really appreciate um, the, the the chat. I hope that it was fun, as fun for you as it was for me. Yeah, it was great. We'll have to have you back, well, especially when Nicole doesn't have a fever one-on-one. <laughs> oh, you know what would be really cool is if you wanted to, um, I don't know if I can get him to do it, but if you ever wanted Robert to do something, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I swear to God, it would change your life. Yes, yes, it yes. It would totally change yes, your yes, life. Yes. I'm serious tomorrow <laughs> just kidding but yeah we would love to have Robert <laughs> all right cool well anyway um uh anyway i really do appreciate it and i hope you have a wonderful day thanks for joining us this week on soundtrack your life make sure to visit our website soundtrackyourlife.net where you can subscribe to the show on apple Podcasts or spotify while you're at it if you found value in the show we'd appreciate a rating or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.